Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, I'm Nico, and you guys can find me at Nico Action on Twitter and Instagram. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And that can only mean one thing. We're here continuing our Marvel multiversal examination of the MC2 into whatever this has become. And I mean that with the most love and admiration for this project I have. This has been a wild ride. I thought, TK, that we were originally investigating some comics that I really loved as a kid my love of spider girl j2 a next wild thing how those stories really shaped me how many issues of fantastic five i guess i read as a kid and it has been so rewarding to read the textual material that we've gone over that you know 225 issues that really represents the mc2 line but man this post mc2 examination has gotten wild yeah it's a real wild thing you know noise <laughs> Originally, it was just the MC2. And I think as we started to get a concept of the MC2 from a real bird's eye view, we started to have some questions about like, how does any of this happen? How do you decide that you need to start a new universe? How do you decide that it has been a failure? How do you decide that one property is such a success amongst its fandom that regardless of kind of consistently failing sales, you keep the book going? How does a character like this come into being? Why? Why is a character like this so problematic, but at the same time so compelling? Like the questions just kept piling up. And though we finished covering the content that really makes up MC2, I think those questions became larger than the line itself, than the future Spider-Girl volumes that would come out after. And I think it really became important to grab as many of the threads as we could that came out of that initial coverage and really explore some stuff that that is not sort of standard to what you would think when you would think about, you know, AU discussions. Like, you know, we could be doing X-Men and then talking about Age of Apocalypse and talking about House of M and talking about the Ultimate Universe. And those are all like things that I love to talk about. And, you know, I would love to listen to a podcast about that. I'd love to record a podcast about that. But there are so many tiny alternatives that are part of any given character, any given universe's makeup that reflect really important parts about them. And I think that's what we really have started digging into in this post MC2 MC2 coverage. And I find myself as fascinated as, you know, discovering a character like Wild Thing that I just had no idea about and fell completely in love with. It's so interesting that you bring up how this is post MC2 coverage and the ways in which that's taught us so much, because I agree. The things that have followed the MC2 have really been interesting ideas to examine. I mean, enjoying so much of the spider material that we're looking at and while we definitely took some weird breaks like last episode's coverage of black tarantula which i never would have expected would have ran as long as fabian is big but sure did and it was rewarding it was exciting it was amazing to engage with elements of the aftermath of mc2 in some ways with the popularity of black tarantula in the pages of daredevil but we also looked at some early issues by tom defalco and it was the surprise 
lengthy discussion of the final four issues of Tom DeFalco's signature Amazing Spider-Man run that delayed our opportunity to talk about as Guardians of the Galaxy 1 through 10, which is definitely a Thunderstrike gave birth to Thunderstrike gave birth to Thunderstrike. So then this was us talking about that third Thunderstrike because so it was it's like real Thunderstrike whose kid is this Thunderstrike, but he sort of inspired his kid Thunderstrike in the MC2 who then inspired this Thunderstrike back in the main Marvel continuity. And so, and that's all, you know, kind of like Ron Friends with Tom DeFalco doing that thing. And we got to talk about that aftermath. And it, well, we actually didn't. And that's the point. <laughs> We're going to talk about those issues of As Guardians of the Galaxy this episode. And I'm really excited to. But my good friend, my amazing man, my incredible TK, I feel very much like we were issued a challenge by the Marvel Unlimited offices. And it led to, as these things always do, a rabbit hole. And I, I believe we have some unforeseen origins of the MC2 to MC Tuminate over. Is it a rabbit hole or is it a wolverine nest? Yeah, I mean, it's a den of claws and fur for sure. And wild hair. I am casually browsing Marvel Unlimited the way I do. And I see this, what the? And it's got a female wolverine on the cover. And so for those of you who aren't familiar, what the is sort of the, okay, but these stories are too ridiculous for what if counterpart that ran through the late 80s and early 90s and the sort of silliness of Spider Baby and the idea of Assistant Editors Month and kind of the overly humor mag side of what if exists ongoingly in what the and there's there's been other things like waha like you know they love to do some take on that terminology and so an issue of what the pops up on Marvel Unlimited and it's number 20 and as I'm going to you know cover this with TK we come to find out that this female iteration of Wolverine, Wolverina, is named Logana, and she ultimately has four appearances, and she has, like, a friend who is their own character who appears in What The... And, man, it's so wild to me that they have been trying to push this sort of female Wolverine thing since October of 1990. Well, and, you know, one of the big things you said about Spider-Baby was... The whole idea that we are shifting over to a Marvel parody comics magazine to discuss the idea of Spider-Man and Mary Jane just being at the point where they could even have a child. And then like the only thing you can really do with that is comedy. We graduate from that to, okay, so it's not comedy, but it is just an alternate universe of like, what if it actually happened? Not like, what if we did the storyline and then got rid of the baby? What if we actually did it? And that's just one what if. And then we graduate further to, okay, we're going to give it a shot, but it's an alternate timeline. And, you know, we're seeing the same thing here of like, what if the absolute most masculine character in the Marvel Universe was actually a woman? And that's now we're talking about 1990. That is part of the the comedy magazine. And it's going to slowly evolve over time until the thing I see on Twitter most these days is Daphne Keene should be the Wolverine for the MCU. And that's, I think, where we wind up in a place that it's been so long coming, right? We used to talk about how people didn't know these characters, right? I think back to when I was a kid, and it's something that's come up on this show 
show a number of times with Tori Sheehan, one of our amazing contributors and my co-host for The Billy Club and Examination of Daredevil, The Man Without Fear. We talk a lot about how if you watched the Friday and Saturday sort of animated slates where it was things like Gargoyles and Batman the Animated Series, there were sort of levels and rungs of which you interacted with these. And X-Men was for many people still maybe the newer one. And you know what? Recontextualizing it, I get it. You know, late 30s was Superman, early 40s is Batman. The 1950s are all about burn the, the commie witches. I don't know. 1960s, you get the Marvel wave of heroes and Spider-Man is really there. It's X-Men kind of in the 1970s. So perhaps X-Men was a little bit outside of that cultural vernacular for so many people. And the popular rise of Wolverine through the pages of X-Men, you know, there's mention of like they almost kicked Wolverine out of the title because he was someone popular until Byrne came in and, you know, pushed him a little bit harder being a Canadian guy, you know, and we get Alpha Flight and, you know, the incredible success of Wolverine leading to things like Wolverine and Spider-Man that, you know, big deal one shot or Wolverine's continued subsequent appearances in books with Hulk, whether it's Incredible Hulk returning to the title for, you know, big special cover issues or popping over to New Fantastic Four. This idea of these characters was still so burgeoning in people's minds that I think in 1990, something like a female Wolverine, I just don't think the world was like ready for it because I don't think the world understood Wolverine. I mean, for fuck's sake, in Pride of the X-Men, he was Aussie. Like, that's just absurdity. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really it. This character, I mean, Wolverine has always kind of just been whatever you need him to be. But as time has gone on, that has become, it's always on the spectrum of somewhere between charming and ridiculous. And you just get writers who play with it differently. And it has really taken us decades and, you know, going through things like the literal death of Wolverine to get to a point of, I think, understanding how how we can have a character that is this malleable, but also that all of us have a common core understanding of. And I think when this What The got published, I don't think there was a lot that you could do with a real alternate universe Wolverine because it just, people just didn't really have a concept of what the main universe Wolverine was. He, all Wolverines at, the, at that time are kind of alternates of each other, book to book. So really all you can do with him is make it a parody and of course the only funny thing about Wolverine could possibly be what if the hairiest guy in the Marvel Universe was actually a really a hot babe in skin tight clothes with a big butt I mean I know drag has made an entire empire out of that very question (laughs) exactly and it's really important to consider at this point when we're talking about you know cultural iterations of characters DC is able to use oh look at these characters meet each other because DC has like 50 years of history by the late 80s not so much marvel right so outside of like captain america where they're like oh that 1950s captain america different dude and you know sort of dialing into those much older versions of the characters you didn't really see that kind of comparison point at that time even when marvel did try something like that in the early 90s it was 2099 a familiar take on ideas but still they were almost always distinctly new characters true new universe was something completely different but but, you know, that was everybody had 80s cocaine noir problems and it's an unrelated nightmare. So we get to this idea of it's in the 90s and something like a female Wolverine is parody. She isn't her own character the way that we think of Rena. She isn't 
her own person the way we think of I'm saying person but like you know Laura the way Laura is this separate IP right at this point that idea of because I mean even when Laura debuted X-23 as her own IP and not just girl Wolverine was impossible we still have that battle now but I think we can really take a look at a couple of issues of what the from the early 90s and I think we're going to find some interesting perspectives on where Rena came from and a certain amount of forgiveness for why things maybe didn't go the way they should have for a female Spider-Man in Spider-Girl. So we're going to be taking a look at four issues of What The, and again, I'm just scrolling through Marvel Unlimited, and I see a cover for What The, and it's What The 20, and it's got a female Wolverine, read the issue, it's got Spider-Ham and a female Wolverine, (laughs) this is ridiculous. And it's crazy right off the bat from that cover how much she already looks like Rena, like she already looks like Wild Thing from the MC2. Oh, a thousand percent. It's wild. And I took a look on the ever popular Marvel fandom which you know we extensively use on this show as a method of getting information and you know understanding the sort of nuance of fandom's knowledge it's so near impossible to know everything on your own it really does take like the active community of fandom because we've all got that oh that one panel that I live and die by so there's no way we could ever do this show without you know the Travis Starnes complete Marvel reading order and without Marvel fandom. And as I'm investigating, it turns out Logana, Wolverina, has four appearances. She appears in What the Nine from October of 1990, number 11 from March of 1991. Later that year in November, she would appear in number 15 for the, probably like the biggest Wolverina story to date, as well as in What the 20 from September of 1992. And while we've already given the Asgardians of the Galaxy credits, just to state quick it ran from November of 2018 to August of 2019, seeing Cullen Bunn do all of the writing. Art would consist of Matteo Loli, Andre Lima Arujo, Natasha Bustos, Luca Maresca, Stephanie Hans, Matteo Buffagini, Paolo Villanelli, Jill Thompson, Frederico Blee, and letters by Corey Pettit. So let's talk about these credits for a moment, though. Peter David is credited with creating Wolverina because of a single panel appearance in in issue number nine, a sort of Wolverine can't stop fighting Wolverines kind of issue. Now, from there, the credits see stable X-Men writer Scott Lobdell write the next three appearances to, you know, varying page count. I have never heard of a good number of these creators, and that makes sense because I think one of the things you come into with, you know, something like a humor mag is it's a very different creature. The art should be different, the paneling, the styling, it should all be very different and so it tracks logically that I wouldn't recognize all of these creators but we see Rurik Tyler on pencils and inks for the first story along with Renee Witterstatter who I believe we have seen on this program before on colors with letters by Tim Harkins. Rurik Tyler would go on to pencil the next story alongside inker Kelly Corvis who would also be an editor at Marvel. Jade Mode is the colorist with more letters by Tim Harkins. 
Issue 15 sees Rorick Tyler alongside Keith Wilson, Brad K. Joyce, and Freddie Mendez, while the final issue has a whole new creative team of Dennis Jensen, Barbara Kalberg, Paul Beckton, and Steve Dutro. Now, there is a character in this story that I need to briefly interact with because she is fabulous. There is this character in one of the stories who is who calls her Rena. That's the thing. She calls her Rena. So we get to call this woman Rena. That's what it is. And this, I, I don't know, she is just basically a wig, a thong, and half of one of Jem's outfits. And her name is Ivory. I wasn't sure if she was Emma Frost or if she was meant to be a really horrifying kind of like, what if a blonde white woman was Storm kind of thing? I don't know. She also but, maybe could have been Felicia Hardy. Yeah, and she's from another issue of What The? They ultimately decided to make these two women, these two unrelated characters from different issues of this offbeat fucking humor mag. They are roommates and best friends, and the unbelievable sexual chemistry is right there on the page. And you know, honestly, like, this is the first and second Wolverine appearances are pretty slapstick, silly, like, Mad Magazine comedy. This one is like funny and silly, but like if you wanted to tune it one way or if you wanted to reference it for something a lot more serious, it is not like if you wanted to pull these guys into a main Marvel title for any exiles or something like that, you could pretty much flash back to a lot of this without any trouble being like the story is too silly to to reprint in any capacity. And if you go on her Marvel fandom wiki, I swear to God, Wolverina has more canon than like it's unbelievable how much canon they've milked out of these very few pages of this character I don't know how these fans were able to do this this puts whole fandoms to shame how deeply into it people went and really got in there I'm really excited to talk about this because when we talked about spider baby and you know spidey baby being so ridiculous and sort of like self insulting by virtue of spidey baby existing spidey baby sucked and here I don't know alright she's silly and she's kind of dumb but okay okay think about the thing that we started this whole conversation with. I kicked things off by mentioning Batman the Animated Series. You cannot tell me that Wolverina isn't a really great kind of Harley Quinn thing. She's got this over-the-top manic style with, you know, kind of maybe even a little bit of the giant hammer move just by virtue of being from a humor magazine. She has this also cheesecakey, super sexy roommate. She's got the ridiculous hair in this over-the-top way. I think about, you know, sort of like the popularization of these counterculture offbeat mags that was going on at the time in the 90s, you know, with things like the Max and things like Tank Girl and a lot of this kind of like things that as a kid I kind of maybe called gross out art because I don't think I really understood what I was exactly interacting with. You know what I mean? So I, I don't know. I think there is a lot of really positive to be said about this introduction for this sort of silly character who we could maybe say MC2 owes a lot to down to the as you pointed out fucking Tom DeFalco references like they meta talk about Tom DeFalco the way we do well and you know Tom DeFalco as this is coming out is editor-in-chief and it's one of the things that stood out to me most is that Tom DeFalco will then go on to create Wild Thing who is also called Rena who looks so much like this character and when we're talking about ideas of like 
these creators for years having understandings of who these characters are, who a character like Wolverine is, who a character like Spider-Man is, what it takes to create the child of that character and build upon the conventions of the superhero itself, but also how a next generation version of that character would function. You see examples of how they're going to play around with those ideas in a parody like Spidey Baby. Again, just the idea like it's so ridiculous. Now we have to figure out how to make it less ridiculous in order to publish a what if. Now we have to make it less ridiculous in order to publish a full line. Similarly here, this first appearance of Wolverine is just one panel and it is really much the joke and punchline in one panel of like Wolverine, the manliest guy you know in the Marvel Universe, but what if lady? Ha ha ha. And from there, we just slowly creep into a point where, you know, as I said, the issue with Ivory, the story is like plausibly a pretty standard superhero story to go from that to then how would a female Wolverine who was the daughter of Wolverine function? What would she look like? How would her costume be similar to her father's? How would she be similar to her father? It just all of the ways that you have to ask and approach these questions in order to develop a character. It's just fascinating to discover that yet another layer of the experience for Tom DeFalco as a writer was to be editor-in-chief when this particular comedy magazine was coming out. And it's so that relationship that, you know, I don't know these people. I don't know what they're like in a room together. For all I know, Peter David and Tom DeFalco are regular friends who all the time go to Olive Garden and split an unlimited soup, salad, and breadsticks. You know, I, I don't know these men, but it does seem very their fandom media personas that Peter David would make a one-off joke and tell the whole joke in one panel. And Scott Lobdell would say that one panel that someone else did. Let me write some issues about it. And then ultimately Tom DeFalco would go, do you remember that idea from when we were young? I'm going to make a whole universe about it. And that really feels like the way that era of Marvel creators all sort of shaped together around those ideas. Yeah, we'll always have to talk about, I think in comic books, oftentimes we skirt around ideas of auteur theory because we're just trying to have fun with the medium. And at a certain point, it gets to be too much. But I really do start to wonder when we see moments like this, both what the intentions were and what actually happened behind the scenes, but then also thinking about the fact that we can discard any intention, any true story about who created a character like Wolverine, who remembered that the character existed and then built upon that, and just look at, as a reader, how funny is it to see this evolution happen regardless of intention, even if it's subconscious, the fact that we watch over time as a female Wolverine goes from a one-panel joke to a really plausible lead in a superhero team is fascinating. And it's amazing to see the cultural shifts that happen around that. It's also so funny that her earliest stories involve her trying to get into a bar and drink underage when drinking is such an element of who Wolverine is, especially at this point in comics. She has a New Year's special, you know, it's Auld Lang Syne and you know that's a very Claremontian sort of Wolverine vibe the characters that guest spot in this issue whether it's you know now Kate Pride or the brief appearance from TechNet you know there is so much in these stories where it really feels like instead of knowing how to engage with you know meaningfully with the idea of a female Wolverine they're sort of still just kind of jabbing fun and poking haha at it and I think in this regard 
we're still seeing maybe slightly more kind treatment of a female Wolverine in What The than we were of the idea of a male mature fatherly Spider-Man over in the pages of What If. I think Spidey Baby, well, I mean, don't get me wrong. These are both silly examinations and humor mags of these other ideas. I think Spidey Baby derides the idea of the potentiality and potential stories of an adult Spider-Man far more than this derides a female Wolverine. I think it's really true. I think the thing that is tough to remember is that cultural standards around depictions of female characters in 1990 were so different. I absolutely wish this were just a little bit less sexualized than it is, but the fact that it's not appalling actually kind of speaks to the fact that this was more like, oh, a woman, it's, it, it was less that the joke is a woman could never be Wolverine. It's more Wolverine we have made so masculine that to flip the script and have him be very feminine is just really jarring. Not that, you know, a woman couldn't be an amazing superhero or a great fighter or really cool. Whereas with Spider-Man, it's like, it is so absurd that Spider-Man and Mary Jane would actually ever be parents that the only thing that we can think of is to give them a horrifying spider cutie, like actual spider child. And all the adventures are silly having an actual spider as a child adventures, not like, oh, I'm trying to work and be a dad and I'm Spider-Man. Which is maybe why the second story has a lot of validity to it. The second full story that we get of Wolverina sees Wolverina and Ivy. And I can't get over how much I love these two. Like I would really read a Wolverina and Ivy story. Uh, even if you had to slightly change it because it's hard to take, you know, Wolverina exactly seriously, I'd still be about it. This is fun. It's silly. You know, fighting a land shark is really interesting because, you know, you brought up, you know, Jeff, but I thought about Shark Girl. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ultimately it's just sort of a questionable character who can transform into a shark person. Okay, fine. Uh, you know, real, real jacked. <clears throat> He is a really interesting counterpoint to Wolverine and Ivory, sorry, Wolverina and Ivory in that regard, because this shark person isn't, you know, silly. He's not like, I am the crimson wave and I will stop your swim time. Like, this isn't some problematic character that creates uh, difficulty taking them seriously as heroes. Number one, of course, it's a humor mag, so the level of severity on the fight should be minimal, but it's actually a pretty good fight. You know, by six-page story standards, it has a credible villain. The heroes do put up a good fight. It's ultimately talked out, but I wouldn't say that it's talked out in a way that perhaps Spider-Man wouldn't talk it out in a sillier regular issue of Amazing Spider-Man. And definitely, this is not even sillier talking things out than Mayday did in like crime arcs, so. <laughs> it's also, the joke is never, they can't do this they're women there's a lot of oh you remember last week when you kicked somebody's ass like you do that all the time what's funny here is it's just a ridiculous situation in which we found ourselves similarly you get a panel of ivy in the water on all fours in a way that the joke is there but she's not face down ass up with like just two giant bubble cheeks in your face i'm really actually shocked at how tame and respectful 
this comes off given how easily it could have gone in the other direction and how easily it does in other what the stories from around the same time. Yeah, I would refer to this as kittenish instead of maybe, uh, you know, cat whore. It definitely is understated in a way I wouldn't have expected. And it's why I think you can see perhaps if things really did go the sort of humorous way we're portraying where to an extent, you know, Tom DeFalco remembered this very formative story in his time as editor-in-chief and this really, you know, locked in with his understanding of shaping characters and building new narratives out of narratives that existed. Yeah, you know what? Other than the fact that the conclusion sort of takes shots at... Okay, back up a minute. For those who don't know, comic books spent a good portion of comic books having really questionable advertisements in comic books, and that's just really what it is. You know, every MLM you've ever heard of got its start in comics. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget the time I bust open an issue and was like, Lululemon. So I think, you know, as long as we recognize that, you know, Marvel was hawking Amway way before the internet was hitting you with pop-ups for it. This joke at the expense of grit. I'm not like, let's defend the MLMs. I'm not like MLMs have feelings too. Uh, I'm more saying it's really interesting that Marvel thinks it's cute to attack the people that might have still been paying their bills at this point. Marvel's never been afraid to bite the hand that feeds it. Yeah, and you know what? That really contextualizes the fact that they were in bankruptcy right before <laughs> or like right after this, right? Because yeah. the bankruptcy was 96, 95, so bankruptcy falls right between this and the start of MC2. I don't know. I think these first two stories plus that one panel, you know, they really paint an interesting picture of Wolverina. She is silly. She is kind of foolish as an idea, but one thing she's not is a female stereotype at the expense of the story or an attempt to mock women for no reason. There's a real sense of this character could exist, and that would be pretty interesting. As we were going over the art for these, and I was kind of pouring over it to make sure it wasn't so disrespectful that we would really have to have a conversation about coverage before we started recording, I started to harken back to, harken back to, an issue that came out last week, Exterminators. This really has a, the same kind of, it's okay to have women be pictured as looking hot, as having cleavage, as being in like more skimpy clothing. The line that you have to cross in order for it to get really offensive and problematic is actually pretty thick. And it's not something that you can really miss unless it's something intentional that you want to do. I think maybe the only thing that's disappointing is the fact that this is an era where it really is not likely that you're going to see a story like this written by a woman. But it does give me sort of some hope that this early on, it wasn't completely unreasonable to expect that an artist could draw female characters that, you know, were in bathing suits and were being silly, but were not being overly sexualized or being mocked as bimbos or being incapable. It's that very vibe that I think is why Wolverina shows up in an issue I can't believe we're going to fucking talk about. <laughs> Again, I really think Marvel Unlimited's team, and I, I don't say this like being like attackingly egomaniacal, like this isn't meant as an insult to anyone. Like I think perhaps, you know, Marvel's Unlimited team have 
great taste in podcasts. And we're talking so much about Spider-Ham and the multiverse and, you know, female Wolverines and the nature of crossovers for the last couple of weeks. And, you know, we didn't just want to take a look at the past of the MC2 and the future of MC2. We're taking a look at the conceptual threads and this what the comes across our, you know, information sphere and it's an Infinity Wart crossover. It sees who would go on to be, you know, names like Aaron Lapresti, among others, working their ass off to make a really good looking humor issue of all of the issues. I would say 20 has the best art. It has a pretty cohesive story throughout, whereas the others were sort of vaguely unconnected, randomly connected pieces. I'm not saying that any single one of these is the knockout of your life, but man, <laughs> God damn it, if you didn't make a really good point about that second story's main character. Well, so for one thing, Milk and Cookies, like immediately I'm going to Cloak and Dagger, and I think that's where you're supposed to go because Milk is very Dagger, but then Cookies I'm looking at, and I'm not really seeing Cloak, but who I am seeing is like broad structural strokes ex Nilo from Jonathan Hickman's run on Avengers, one of my favorite characters to come out of that run. But, you know, I can't begin to imagine a world in which the creative team goes, remember that one issue of What The from almost 30 years ago? I think I want to take some inspiration from that. And yet the similarities, both in coloring and like design of horns on the head, it really does make you wonder. And if it was not an intentional thing, that's fully plausible. But then it really just makes you think about the ways that these motifs will reappear over time. And they they don't just need to be for one single character or one single genre of comic. They kind of can come from all over the place. And the inspiration is always out there. And it even brings us to, I, I'm so sorry. I wish there was a better way to say it. The juiciest panel of Spider-Ham's ass I've ever seen. <laughs> He's got some thighs in there too at one point. Fuck, and that back spread and those shoulder blades. Well, and that's, that's another thing that's just so funny is because like this is the parodiest Spider-Ham and yet he is like kind of a hunk spider pig and then the one that we're getting in like those the like web warriors is like just this round potato with a pig snout on it and like at one point you see him without his suit on and it's horrifying it's just very amusing to me that they were like no for the humor mag he's like a stud but for the very serious book he is a ridiculous little monster potato piggy yeah it i'm not here to fucking you know like scam on pig boys you know <laughs> what i mean but that's like... for after the podcast yeah that's for you know XXX is for podcast after dark. But I also need to point out that this is the most anatomically muscular venom pig spider person <laughs> we've ever seen. I can't believe the conversations we have to have on this fucking show sometimes. Yeah, he's also real caked up, too. Let's just make sure everybody knows that. And he's got, like, these, like, warthog fangs. <laughs> it's, like, a really great take on the character. I guess I don't even know anymore. Is this the same Venom pig that we saw in Web Warriors? Uh, you know, fair question. I'm, now we're going to have to go do this whole thing again and talk about what really makes a, a Venom pig and the years oh, of geez. inspiration that, that brought us to the one we see. Well, it gets better because 
because when Wolverina appears, I do want to say it's not that the Lobdell stories didn't get it. It's that the Lobdell stories don't sell it the way one panel can fuck you good, right? Like, that's the thing I think that you can always get across best. I don't need to see Wolverine, you know, slice someone to itty bitty pieces. I am just as affected if I see a corpse with the three slashes. It tells me the same thing. And you're telling me by showing me instead of choreographing it. There's ways to do things that are really eloquent and the ways to not show things that are eloquent, right? And this panel of Wolverina uh, at the end of this other part of <laughs> What the 20, it's the weirdest thing. That, you know, it's pretending that it's a whole issue all straight through, right? Uh, but it's a, it's an arc and it's a crossover. Again, it's a classic Wolverine pose and it's just done so well. And then you get that cover of Wolverina on the next page and equally spectacular. And, you know, this is again that kind of Fang costume era and we're seeing Akihiro in you know the fang era kind of costume now there is so much that i get from these stories that i wouldn't expect to you know i think i actually get more from this what the interpretation of wolverina than i did from some of the actual like wild thing issues and i find myself equally impressed with this character i don't know i really love them in the sewer being you know some weird mix between a classic wolverine issue and and a Final Fantasy VIII traveling through the underground of the city uh, trying to level up your GF's mission. <laughs> but I need to point out, did you realize that her claws are in her fingertips? I did while we were discussing this. During our initial coverage, I really didn't. And, you know, again, it speaks to these ideas of just like our expectations of any particular Wolverine. I think if you gave me a new Wolverine today, if you said they're doing another clone or it turns out Wolverine had you know some other offshoot or offspring the first thing I would do is look for the number and placement of claws but because this is an old story and I saw it as just kind of a one-off take on Wolverine immediately my I just assume that it's just the three claws and that's it and then as we're going through and discussing it I'm realizing that she actually has four and then I'm realizing that they are her nails like not in that lady death strike way whether they're coming out of her fingertips but like she has the most deadly manicure in the history of the Marvel Universe. And again, like that's a woman is more likely to be someone who gets her nails done. Therefore, the idea that this woman would have nails and that, that she would have that instead of Wolverine's standard claws, that is not offensive. It is not in any way sexualizing. And, you know, for this parody story, it ends up that her nail claws are the things that save the day. So, like, there are always ways that you can say this is something we typically associate with women that's not associated with men here's a spin on it for a male character enjoy your comic and at no point do we have to be like oh wow this really required her you know in a thong with her ass hanging out or the book just couldn't possibly be published it's so important to consider that sort of perspective and you know she really has in just these few stupid issues made a pretty big impact on us I like the ways in which she's her own you know claw girl and I like the ways that she's pretty familiar it would be pretty silly to not mention that this issue features Four Bushman in great stark detail. And Four Bushman is from Not Brand Eck, which is one of the earliest Marvel humor mags. He's a Stan Lee character. Uh, you know, he's just sort of a go-to for silly stories like this. And so it's not exactly that it's a Wolverina story or even really a Spider-Ham story. 
but this was a really pleasant little surprise for me all said and done i think the detour into wolverina and ivory for that matter was a real pleasant one i was happy to go on this journey and experience this sort of i'm not even sure what to call it maybe sidestep into what could have been in its own right and i just i continue to absorb these lessons of it does not just have to be oh you know gene gray is my favorite character so what would be really interesting is to take a look at gene gray in the age of apocalypse where things are really dark or what is gene gray what is rachel gray gonna be like in age of x where things are you know really messed up and they're playing constant tower defense the idea that these little stories came out where somebody wrote and drew a significant amount to just do a parody character in which creative people said how do we make wolverine funny what can we do with this character that's amusing how can we spin a design for a male character for a female character in a way that makes you think like oh this is identifiably a woman but isn't offensive these are all things that i think if you really are going to long term be a comic book fan at a certain point those big broad strokes changes to a characters they're always interesting and fun but like you do have to start kind of playing around with these nitty gritty details and looking at the holistic concept of what makes a wolver person what makes a spider person and how are you going to play around with things on a more personal microscopic introspective level to create a character that is authentic to whatever you're trying to convey about your own history experience culture or that of the character that you're creating while never resorting to the kind of stereotypes that bring us into offensive territory, make people feel marginalized, punched down. Um, And I think just this whole project, I've been so impressed with the number of examples that we found of people that I feel like at worst failed in trying to do that. But most of the time they actually really succeeded and impressively so, especially when you look at the times and what the standards were for a lot of creatives. One of the things that impresses me most in giving these creators credit is even though it starts as an offhand joke, Wolverina and also Rena and Mayday, even American Dream and J2, these aren't just, oh, that other version of this character. In fact, it's not even just that Wolverina is a cousin of Wolverines. She's the cousin of Slogan. Slogan appears in 21 of the 26 issues of What The? He's sort of their like main Wolverine and he would actually even appear in Secret Wars Battle World 3 so like this isn't a character that has never appeared anywhere else and you know it's funny that we're talking about that issue uh, Secret Wars Battle World number 3 it has an unbelievable number of Wolverines that appear <laughs> most of them are sort of like actual Wolverines that appearance of slogan is nice uh, it's a little disappointing that we don't get Wolverina or Rena. But again, I guess they're not actually Wolverines. So, mm-hmm. and that even was a thing that came up with spiders, right? And now I want to, so this is a whole big conversation, but hear me out. Follow me on this rabbit hole for a minute. Always. If spiders, right? Like we say that the the heart of the spider, even almost, hey, Aranya girl, what's up, right? So this spider identity is a special thing that you have. You inherit this mystic spider totem power 
power. And it's this like this empowering ability that connects you to the web of life across the entire multiverse. But not every person with the spider totem is Peter Parker. And we know that because of Billy Braddock and Mayday. Fair? And Jessica Drew. And Jessica Drew. Really great point. So then, okay. So now we kind of have an, an understanding that spider totem isn't just about being Peter Parker. It's about being spider character, right? Now, with Wolverines, is the actual thing Wolverine the man or is the thing Wolverine as a concept? And where does the line lie? One of the things that I think makes you an archetypical power sort of focus point in your universe is the potentiality for somebody to come in and sub in for your costume. And I don't mean like, oh, look, there's also another character called Jubilee. And oh, look, there's also another character called Skin. Yeah, that's not like, man, I was so inspired by the other Jubilee that I became this Jubilee. What's up? That's just like Chris Claremont has a limited vernacular for naming characters, things that mean bright, shiny explosion, you know? So I think if somebody can step in as you, and we've seen it over and over again with times where Wolverine has been written out of the books, they've made an effort to sub someone else in. You know, I think back to sort of this era of comics, the what the era that we're talking about. And I remember very much, and it does take a little bit of contextualization back into that idea of the animated series, but any good animated series exists to sell toys. It's there to be great art. Don't get me the fuck wrong. Psh, great. Make make your good art, right? I'm here to make good art too. I make comic books, right? But I also want to make comics that are able to reach people. And I understand that that means there's better ways than like selling them out of my basement. And if you want your animated series to reach people, it's a competitive market with a lot of tie-ins. And, you know, there's a lot of things in X-Men, the animated series that existed to sell toys. And that's kind of the long and short of it. And those toys, in order to make them an even better value and to continue cross-promotion and probably get rid of backstock, had classic Ultra Fleer Marvel trading cards in them. And it's usually that set that everybody thinks of with the Jim Lees and the Wills Potashios and the Bill Sienkiewicz's, the, uh, those really standard cards. I have a set. I know Dylan, House of X, hey Dylan, has a matching set. We have them together, right? You know, it's a thing that a lot of people identify with, those cards. And one of those things that those cards did was they had like, oh, this character's on this team. This character's on this team. And if you read those cards, you would be under the impression that since roughly when Magneto went, oh, I'm gonna X-Men 1 through 3, you guys. Sabretooth's been an X-Man. He's just hanging out on a different team while Wolverine's over there on that team. But like, they've basically come to cool terms and maybe Wolverine's even a little bit nicer than he is in the show. But Sabretooth's just kind of like a big old grumpy bitch. And like, but that's what you think is happening. You also think that Psylocke and Revanche have like equal ground and equal footing and are both whole women. So there's some real misleading things from those cards. You have no idea what the status of Excalibur is. You think there's only ever been five dead X-Men, right? There's things that those cards led us to believe. And I wonder how much that kind of fandom imprinted on people and how it led to things like sub someone else in for Wolverine. And I would love to get your idea on is Wolverine James Howlett or can you live the Logan code and be a Wolverine? I tend to fall 
squarely in the camp of you follow the Logan code and you can be a Wolverine. And I think that that has been a negotiation since the 90s, since around this time, since, you know, this parody came out and we started asking, like, what's an alternative to Wolverine? I think that functionally for a beat-em-up clause, I can murder as needed. Sabretooth has often been slotted into that role. You know, he's wearing a collar that'll blow his head up if he falls out of line. He has been accessed by lobotomized Charles Xavier's brain in Red Skull's body, and now everybody's moral codes are different. But the closest example is uh, Age of Apocalypse Sabretooth. I really do think that a big thing that was being said there is, you know, despite the claws and the gruffness, this is not a Wolverine. Functionally, maybe for team power needs, sure, but there's more to it than that. And I feel like the journey has been getting Laura and Akihiro to embrace becoming Wolverines themselves. It's it's funny because I think Gabby is kind of like her childlike innocence is weirdly the thing that gets her there. Um, and, and it's almost kind of a no-brainer for her, but it, it really is the journey of Laura being able to be a Wolverine and the best of Wolverine, getting to be getting to have a better life and be a better version of Wolverine, one who hopefully has more autonomy throughout her life, although for various reasons of writers thinking things are edgy, that has been futzed with at times where it shouldn't have been. I really do feel like one of the things that I love most about Spider-Verse was this idea that like there is a code to being a spider person and I see it for the Wolverines as well. I think Wild Thing Rena makes a really fascinating example because her father is just kind of a different person than what we have come to really see as Logan but he also is the same person just with a life that has been so different and so her being raised by him it, it's a very different thing than Laura being raised by 616 Wolverine but at the end of the day I think we are always driving towards a desire to truly do good and make the world a better place and leave the world better for the next generation but to never lose that understanding of how dark and horrible things can be. And it goes so deep because as we continue to talk about these things I'm remembering that the first time I can think of where I was told people could also be that person, right? Like I remember Superman is Superman and I remember like, you know, Batman is Batman and then one day I remember hearing that now there's like four Supermen and it's oh my the rise of the Superman. Yes. And then one day, you know, the Joe Quesada character uh, Azrael replaced Batman and then Robin replaced, you know, Nightwing, sorry Dick, no offense, replaced him after that. And the general sense I got from it was, okay, but it's a big deal when somebody replaces somebody. What I wasn't hearing a lot of was, oh, but there are people who just sort of carry on in that legacy. The only one I could ever think of was as a kid, I knew War Machine after being Iron Man became War Machine. But then one day when I was just the right age in 1998, I remember hearing, and it's unbelievable because that's right at the same time as MC2, but if you told me they were at the same time, I would tell you to fuck yourself and you gotta be wrong. <laughs> but the Slingers came into being and the Slingers were four characters who adopted identities that Spider-Man had used previously. They were Ricochet, Prodigy, Dusk, and Hornet. And they were using the previous code names that Spider-Man had used during 
during his identity crisis crossover he was afraid to use spider-man because spider-man was wanted so he created a bunch of character costumes right and these characters perhaps were not really the bangers that everybody thought they'd be but the idea that as a kid that four kids could just become spider-man was defining for me because it opened my mind up to the idea that a spider-man is a role you can fill and now recontextualize it like i am gobsmacked at recontextualizing the slingers as coming out in october of 1998 in regard to spider girl there was this huge wave of no but spider-man can be a cool young person and i think it's because our generation were becoming cool young people and at a certain point as much as you love characters and i think we always do to a certain degree want to see the old standards you do want to also see not just a reflection of yourself culturally because we can always shift people's ages and just fudge things around so oh now spider-man is a junior in high school and you're in eighth grade so he might as well be you when you grow up really like i want to see somebody new who i can identify with i want to see somebody who is different in ways that you can't fudge with comic book timing the next generation always needs some version of that when we're lucky you get some really great characters that are able to continue i think a lot of stuff gets thrown on the wall and doesn't stick i am now an old man and so didn't necessarily connect with vidal's children of the atom but i thought it was a really fantastic book for acknowledging that there is a new generation of young people that wants to see themselves in comic book stories and wants to see themselves coming of age in comic book stories i would love that to be uh, a group of characters that succeed somewhere else but i really appreciated the effort that was made to acknowledge that life is just different for a kid today than it was for kids when the academy x kids were coming up and we just need to see some different stuff we can't just keep aging the academy x kids down like we can't keep aging generation x down like we can't keep aging the new mutants down but there is always room to follow codes and fill roles that have been set by characters that have been around for decades and those speak to common moral and ethical codes that we have in life and that we want to be inspired by people that came before us and pick up on. And I think that's exactly what's happening in the pages of Spider-Man now. A number of the slingers are still kind of recognizable by today's standards. Uh, You know, I think people might recognize their costumes more than their names. But for instance, Ricochet, John Gallo, who I guess after directing the Brown Bunny, that's a little Gallo's humor for you, (laughs) went back to being in Spider-Man and is in the Beyond era, part of the Beyond Corporation, and has had like 50 appearances. He also was a regular member of the second volume of Runaways, ultimately being a part of his own miniseries, The Loners, which had been called Excelsior, but at the time, Stanley was a little bit more, I'll sue you! And so there was a little bit less Excelsior and a little bit more redacted by the lawyers. So you got The Loners, right? And there's another member of the Spinners, the other prodigy, who is Richie Gilmore, and he's another one who has gone on to have an incredible number of appearances, just about 50. He appears mostly, actually, in Avengers Initiative material, but the Slingers have all started sort of appearing in the Ben Riley stories, and that's even kind of where I'm going. Is there a world in which, without Mayday Parker and the Slingers, that there could be a Spider-Verse? This idea 
of totemic spider identity, this idea of constellation of concept, right? Because Spider-Man has come to mean so many things to so many people, it's become impossible to keep the idea of Spider-Man to one thing. One of our absolute favorite parts of our discussion of Web Warriors was, you know, stumbling upon how important Spider-Man India is for so many people. And then for that concept to come back around into the pages of Spider-Verse is a nod to how Spider-Verse is shaped by so many cultural interpretations of Spider-Man. And I think this 1998 moment that happened, where I'm also going to throw in that there was Web Spinners, Tales of Spider-Man, which was right in this same time in like 1997, that was like, oh, by the way, Spider-Man's still young and cool. Here's some young guy tales. I think we really find a moment just as the Spider-Man movies are getting ready, where we're on our second iteration of the Spider-Man cartoon, where Spider-Man became iconic to hundreds of subsets in thousands of ways. And Spider-Verse is a response to that in a way that I think Wolverina in What The is the same sort of kind of super sigilistic Gnostic push into bringing Wolverine into that same stratospheric position. I really see what you're saying and I think what is fascinating about May Day, there's obviously been previous alternate versions of Spider-Man and you know we had clones before this so we're obviously thinking of like legit alternates to Spider-Man, people that maybe wouldn't necessarily fill the Spider-Man role but look like Spider-Man and have his same powers but do things differently. With Mayday, and I really think with Tom DeFalco being who he is, with the experience that he has had, and this is something that we've talked about since the beginning of this, with Mayday, you really do get that. What is the core of being a Spider-Man? What is the core of being Peter Parker as Spider-Man? What do those things mean when that person then raises another person and that, that other person lives their whole life under the values, ideals, and care of Peter Parker as Spider-Man, what do all these things mean? What are the important takeaways? How would you walk to school in the morning? How would you confront friends that are in a fight? What would you do when you got powers? And I think that those questions really do start with Mayday. And yeah, eventually they bloom into the entire Spider-Verse. But I would be fascinated to imagine a world in which they got to it a different way, because I really think that with May, there was so much opportunity, not just to examine what it means to be all of the things that make a spider person but then to have a really important conversation about not limiting that to one specific gender identity and then that just opens up the entire conversation you know we could have had a spider boy and had so many of these same story beats what is it like to be the child of spider-man but you know you are his son but the fact that right off the bat the first thing that we can definitively say is gender does not matter when it comes to filling the role of a spider person And from there, anything is on the table. I think that it was just real luck that it was May Day that was that first character. And I think it's why we've seen so many alternate versions of Spider-Man that have been so successful with audiences and that make us want more. And I think that in a very different way, and it's a longer, more circuitous journey, we are starting to get that for Wolverine. I think we can actually look back to two major events for Wolverine for sort of some perspective on this conversation. When I take a look back at the death of Wolverine, there was, you know, death of Wolverine one through four, which spun out of like two consecutive fucking volume 
volumes of Wolverine that were like 12, 13 issues that were like, you know, basically Wolverine's going to die to death over and over again for months. They took away his healing factor. They, you know, made him be written by John Byrne again. And, you know, they did some rough things. And Death of Wolverine was Death of Wolverine 1 through 4. The Logan Legacy 1 through 7. Life After Logan. uh, Deadpool Captain America combination one shot. uh, Weapon X Project 1 through 5. And then it culminated in the Weekly Wolverine series that ran 20 issues. And that was not the moment. Yeah. No, that absolutely was not the moment. It was was a lot of misfires I think you know we've talked about how sometimes Spider-Man was weekly and if you really break out the earliest days of the MC2 the MC2 used to be all but weekly it was three titles a month that's three of the four weeks a month just throw in that you know off week for the five week event you know it's not too many months weren't getting hit I'm sure Slingers didn't come out the same day as an MC2 book you know so yeah the new wave of Spider the young heroes of Marvel wave was probably rough weekly but that's a really tough thing to carry across with only one book so it's this overload of stories and you know I remember reading it and I did a, a reread of all of it a couple of yeah, 2021 actually you know Pando meant a bunch of reading time and so it's not really a cohesive look at the death of Wolverine because you know I wish more death of stories were about commemorating the hero that died but they always become setting up the book that's about the hero that's going to replace the hero that's died and the death of Wolverine event didn't tell me anything about what a Wolverine core code character is. Whereas perhaps I did kind of get that from Spider-Verse. Spider-Verse told me that a spider character is, I guess, dutiful, is locked into a sense of moralistic integrity toward their place in the universe. They all feel that whatever this, with great power comes great responsibility, whatever this innate voice in their head that drives them them to be the hero, to be the spider character. It drives them to preserve that quality of spirit. Spider characters believe that with great power comes great responsibility because they've had the thought. Therefore, they share in the hive mind experience of that idea and thus work to preserve it instinctively. The only thing that I got out of the Death of Wolverine event that told me anything about those things are they're all really shitty people. I also think Death of Wolverine ended up being a lot more about what it is like to have loved, respected, hated, and be mourning Wolverine. Like it, it, because yeah, I mean, at a certain point, it really was just about setting up who the next Wolverine was going to be, and then how how fast can we get him back while having it still have some integrity that he died. But what you're left with from there is all of the characters that he leaves behind who have some legacy with it, and that's why you have so many books that come along with the death of Wolverine in which characters come together to deal with whatever interactions they've been having with Logan and it yeah it just became so much about what it was like to have known him and unfortunately timeline wise it was just a bad time for some of the most important characters including Scott and Jean such that while I think that actually isn't the worst way to salvage a kind of stupid death of story that's not really giving you the core of a character to be able to give you the the core of 
of what it meant to love that character, I think is a good way to salvage it if the storyline is going to happen either way. Unfortunately, just some of the most important characters for Logan were not there to be a part of that. And so, yeah, that one was was a was a flop for a few reasons. But I do think that in being the flop that it was, it kind of goes to show you what it takes to investigate the core of a character. And it can't just be it's an event that we're losing this person. Get into it. It really does take some serious filtering and mining and distilling and solid character work that takes a lot of time and gets really messy. It takes a lot of books and, you know, it maybe is not going to be the most financially viable thing, which is why I can understand why we don't do a lot of it. But it ends up, if we're lucky, happening naturally in a lot of ways. And I think that Spider-Verse really did an incredible job of giving us so many different spider people, but establishing that, like, yes, there is a there is a code and a core for these people. And when Wolverine died and they tried to, you know, figure out how to adjust for, you know, Marvel is always so good about being like, no, Wolverine's one through 20 with like 76 artists and sometimes like three writers an issue. That's what we were trying to do. <laughs> like, you know, they're really good about that. <laughs> they they lie with Lokian expertise and that's what a media engine should do. We're the little shits who every time go, oh yeah, no, we totally know you meant to. That's so great. The way that you meant to do that and it worked, killed it, guys. And, you know, I feel like there's two sides of that. I just want to say that I think half the time we're like, no, we really get it. Yeah, you guys totally meant to. This Zorn thing, <laughs> you always meant for it to be super ambiguous and it has to do with, you know, star for a brain or whatever. Yeah. And then the other side of it is like, yeah, no, you guys, yeah. Everything that happened with the shipping schedule between the pandemic and Diamond Comics, <laughs> you guys totally, yeah, you guys absolutely very full proud. control the entire time we never doubted it but like that actually does connect to perhaps one of the things that came out of it now wolverines by tom taylor all new wolverine by tom taylor was specifically excellent i'm a big fan i think it's a really beautiful run and it says a lot of incredible things while i am a huge fan of greg pack and a pretty big fred van lente fan i'm not the biggest fan of the weapon x series that starts with like saber Old Man Logan, Domino, Proud Star, and Lady Deathstrike. And like at some point, like you get Mystique and Omega Red, and like Old Man Logan has to go off and die, and sometimes Deadpool is there. It's not the best run for this book, this idea, this character. And I feel like it being canceled was so sudden because the final arc starts with A New Era Begins. And I feel like when you're at the final arc and you do that, you might as well have put Grand Conclusion of Three Years of storytelling starts here like I think that maybe sells it a little better but I don't know this is uh, not my favorite version because it says things sort of like do you have claws well then you're a Wolverine you am Wolverine I think we got a lot of that during the like Romulus Lupine era too where I think they tried to be like there's actually like a genetic or like a, a there's some there's a subspecies and I don't know that they were entirely trying to claim that like these people all fall 
followed the Logan Code. In fact, they very clearly were not doing that. But the fact that we were even like Feral, Wolfsbane, this random dude Romulus are all of the same ilk is as silly to me as the idea that like Sabretooth could also be a Wolverine. It's it really is a specific and special thing that it's it's not for everybody on a genetic level and it's not for everybody on a moral and ethical level either. And part of it has to do with like I think you even because you know when you take an idea like oh we're gonna do a line of Wolverine character books okay then do Wolverine character books but when you're like we're gonna do a line of Wolverine character books and I guess some of the characters in there are just characters that happen to know Wolverine or have been connected to Wolverine over the years and maybe even some of them just in very vague ways like perhaps there's no good reason for a proud star to be in this book at all whatsoever at all except you kind of want a sexy love interest for Domino I guess okay and you don't want to put Colossus in this one I get that but I gotta be honest Colossus might have been a better fit like you know you get into these sorts of modes with the transformation when you say you're doing thing A and immediately you're like well thing A plus you've compromised thing A and you're no longer doing the thing you said you were gonna do which is why the hunt for Wolverine is just not a Wolverine thing number one that's how we get the correction that is necessary on the Betsy Conan Psylocke revanche story I'm very happy that it becomes its own thing but how is that a Wolverine story other than it uses some Wolverine characters without him yeah I don't have a good answer for that so you know it has to do with a a real understanding of what is or isn't that idea and how does it play into who the character is funny enough with all that we're talking about you know they make it very clear that Ben Riley is a different character they make it very clear that Kane is a different character and they are unique entities they have their own motivations and behaviors and for that reason the Spider-Verse is about different people being Spider-Man but when I think about most of the other Wolverines they're just literally other Wolverines they're like Wolverine but as a phoenix Wolverine but from another dimension but he's still just straight up Wolverine no different Wolverine but he's old okay. <laughs> like it's not really a stretch on the character it's a little bit more one for onesies and that's I think where the focus back to the whole thing that we're talking about kind of comes back into play we started this whole thing examining this universe that was what if these characters aged in real time but the characters they created were so hyper analogous to the existing structure of the Marvel Universe in some way or another. The depths to which we felt that A-Next was just a mirror of Avengers, it didn't really create a jumping on point for us in particular. I know we were like, oh, so is Freebooter just Hawkeye but sucks more? You know, and there is an extent to which Stinger just sort of is Ant-Man without the damage leading... Plenty of her own damage. Oh, yeah, no, plenty (laughs) of her own damage. And we have Vision in mainframe. You know, there's so many parallels that exist that I feel as though the inherent idea of capturing the spirit of a character has more to do with a dynamic understanding of what makes something work. And I'm coming to this on air an hour and a half into this recording. But I think the reason we love Wild Things so much is she's what if Wolverine was Jubilee? 
she is a young female hero who is kind of mall fun and kind of hip. Her powers are sparklier than Wolverine's. She wants to be just like her big guy and train with him. And there's a lot of then sort of secondary parallels between the interpretation of Elektra and Storm from the animated series and the role that Storm played in Jubilee's life in the animated series. Though I think there's a little bit more of a shared, not burden, but uh, credit to multiple women in the Marvel Universe proper. There's, of course, the famous Jean Grey consoling Jubilee issue. There's Storm as a mother figure. There's Psylocke as a, you know, co-warrior. But yeah, if Jubilee is the Robin to Wolverine's Batman, I think in a lot of ways, Rena, Wild Thing, is kind of like early Damien. But oh my God, and Talia is Electra. I have to go. <laughs> oh, it all comes full circle. I mean, I think you're 100% right. And one of the really important things there is Jubilee wants to be Wolverine. She wants to follow the Wolverine code. You know, she's got her own powers, obviously. She's not going to, I mean, in some, I think there are a couple of times where she does, not main universe, but I think there are alternate universes where she also does a Claws thing. But like in general, she wants to be like her dad figure. And that again speaks to this idea of what makes a version of the character, what makes a spider person, what makes a Wolverine person is wanting to be that, you know, taking the original, being inspired, being raised by, being taught by, and wanting to live up to the legacy that you were given by that person. I think Jubilee is a fantastic example of that. And I think, yeah, you really do see in Rena a version who got to have the full experience of being raised exclusively by Wolverine and how that really speaks to her being such an iconic version of the character, despite the fact that like she's had a different life. So it is not all one-to-one. And that's the really cool thing is to be a spider person, to be a Wolverine person does not mean you live the exact same life as that character. It really is more about trying to follow in their footsteps in the important ways. And that's why I think that we've seen from Laura Nakahiro recently, such a important version of that, both very different lives from Wolverine, but you can really see now that they are committing to, I want to do this. I want to be this type of good person. I want to make right what I see wrong in the world. And no, I am not afraid to do something drastic and difficult to get there. And in order to make life better for those around. And when I think back to where some of that consistency of character comes from, I think you can paint it directly back to the fact that Larry Hama wrote Wolverine during some of the most recognizable periods on the character. He wrote Jubilee during that time. He would ultimately go on to write Generation X with Jubilee. Jubilee then becomes the leader of the Uncanny X people. We are still mad about it. Not her leadership, but the damn name. And lack of book. And and lack of book. And so then, where does J2 come in? If we're saying that the best interpretations of these characters honor the spirit of the thing and not so much the body. I'm not here for your one-to-one costume swap. I'm here for the emotional entity to be the same, the the sort of, uh, you know, pathos quality. And I then wonder about how with a character like J2, 
who they said was going to be the inheritor of the line in the mutant quarter, you know, in that corner for, in the mutant corner initially, right? You know, sure, wild things started appearing first in the pages of J2, but so Spider-Girl is the proper way to do it. The inheritor of the spirit. A-Next was a little too one-to-one. I don't know that this semi-heroic kind of Mike O'Malley version of Kane Marco existed in 1998. This is such a revisionist version of Juggernaut that this interpretation then of J2 feels perhaps, and again, funny enough that it was the humor book doing dumb things like, you know, the fairy tale two-pagers and all of the weird coming-of-age dick stuff. I just, yeah, man, there's a lot of things that I'm really seeing where MC2 was the last shreds of something that didn't yet understand the ways it was going to die to give birth to the next shreds of something. And I think J2 is a really fascinating example that would take its own show to even get into. And I wish there there are some supplementary materials that don't exist that I wish we had because, yeah, I think timeline-wise in terms of Juggernaut's journey to becoming a good guy, we're a little bit off. But the interesting thing about J2 is it does feel like Zane is saying, I want to be like my dad. I want to follow in my dad's legacy. But he doesn't actually know what that is because his dad has been gone for so long. And that could have been a really fascinating opportunity to have readers and the characters discover what it means to be a juggernaut at the same time. And maybe for, you know, in this particular instance, because it's not as defined as what it means to be a spider person, maybe Zane is contributing a big chunk of that meaning. He's not just doing what the original juggernaut did, because a lot of what the original juggernaut did wasn't so great, but he's actually saying, you know, in one to do this while you were gone and then trying things out while you were gone. This is what I came up with. Could this be part of what it means to be a juggernaut? Like there, there's real potential there. This is an ongoing question for all of these characters and it hasn't been done for everybody. You know, I think Apocalypse is another character that has gone in directions we never would have expected and Evan Sabiner being somebody who wanted to be not a version of Apocalypse but better than Apocalypse and what we got from Apocalypse in the Crocodile Cohen era. I mean, it's just, there are so many ways to ask this question about so many characters and then so many ways to answer it too. Because you're right. There should be more supplemental material. You know what I never fucking thought to look up? Mm. Sachiyama, Juggernaut's wife, J2's mama. Did Zane Yama's mom exist in the Marvel Universe before 1998? No. She was created in the Marvel Universe after the fact. I'm not, I'm fucked by this. In X-Men Forever number six from June 2001 and that's the make mystique a scaly nonsense creature. Which is canon, the... right? Yeah, this one's yeah. canon. Sachiyama was a lawyer placed in charge of Kane Marco by the Commission on Superhero Human Activities. Oh my god. And so she was added to the Marvel Universe after J2 existed. I mean, not exactly by aging of real time, but like, we could have a J2 out there now. Yeah, yeah. I would you know, actually, you, you could have that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's really eye-opening for me. A lot of the ways in which these connective tissues keep going. We could have whole episodes about some of these characters. Like the idea that there is a hope who is Ant-Man's child who existed before the film version in MC2. And how does that translate back? And the number of characters that are introduced in MC2 that get no real, no real payoff in any real way. Like my end 
ridiculous frustration that Dark Devil has so few appearances that, as far as I know, there is no proper Marvel 616 counterpart for the Buzz. And that's really interesting because if there's no counterpart for the Buzz, then how did they get to that character? And it's just shocking to me because I really would have thought that there would be uh, the Buzz. Yeah, is JJ out there somewhere not being the Buzz? And could you plausibly, from what is in 616 now, have him sh- have, a, have a JJ show up in the pages of Spider-Man and find a suit? Because everywhere I look, all of the looking I've done, I can't find any reference to a the Buzz from Marvel proper. So yeah. he's kind of like a one of the slingers then, I guess, in a way. There are so many things that we keep coming back to. And I mean, obviously, we're not getting to Asgardians this episode, <laughs> which is like the biggest joke in the history of anything. These four, what? And now I'm convinced now, Marvel Unlimited, guys, if I mean, if you're not doing it, this is weird. Blink twice for yes. Right? I think, I think I've like convinced myself that Marvel Unlimited is uh, trying to help us trace these threads, right? It's not that I think they're communing with us in some sort of deep spiritual way, but even if it's just synergistic goodness, the way we're finding more arenas, there's a wealth to the fact that this whole project exists because when my dad got a different job in the city, he had a new walk to the Port Authority, right? And so he passed Midtown Comics and I grew up collecting, I grew up reading my dad's old collected comics. My dad had collected comics from like, you know, the the late 60s till the early 90s, maybe late 80s when, you know, kids just made it too expensive. And then he just happened to have uh, the right job at the right time and walked past, you know, one of the most famous comic shops in the world and started stopping in to grab books. And my dad being where I get my spreadsheets from, uh, had really incredible spreadsheets and kept track of things and made sure to buy every issue of every series and made sure to fill in holes and would go back if he decided to start buying something and collect some of the stuff he was missing. And he was always really careful about, you know, not double buying covers. He would, you know, get, he was very meticulous. And it's, you know, a lot of where I get my respect for the funny books from, right? And he would bring home these brown paper folded in half things. And, you know, sometimes they would be these fat fucking boys and sometimes they'd be on the thinner side. And as a kid, I had my favorites. I was super into porny Randy Queen Dark Child for some reason. Definitely super wrote some major parts of my fiction self, right? I read whatever he brought home. So I read the Alan Davis X-Men books and man, they were not accessible for a 10-year-old. When he would bring home these Spider Girl and J2 comics and I'm like 10, 11, 12 years old, like I, yeah, I really could see myself in that. And it impacted me. And then I became obsessed with bodybuilding. Hey, thanks, Yamas. And I write comics and I just can't help but wonder how many people are equally inspired by these same ideas. You know, we talked a lot about how there were things in this episode that we found connections to in Web Warriors, like the idea of Venom Spider Ham. So was Mike Costa inspired by these what does as a child? Is Rena a response to Rena? This notion that each one of our fandoms is sort of a unique library. It's a unique long box that we carry with us. And as we were doing this episode, I was live tweeting some of the more ridiculous Wolverina and Ivory stuff. And TK's amazing partner, Jake, also on X's for Podcast, was interacting with how they remember Wolverina from what 
what the from childhood. And you just don't realize the sort of layers that you create of understanding your own fiction persona from these experiences, these brown paper parcels filled with whatever books your dad realized the collection was missing that day. And it leads to art, whether it's the potentiality of Mike Costa having been inspired or me and not just the comics I make, but this fucking show dragging TK into this weird fucking project, you know? So I think it really is an unbelievable exercise in decoding a chronology of cause and effect fandom. And like we make the joke and maybe with a little bit of a raised eyebrow about Marvel Unlimited communicating to us through these launches of new what the's and, you know, the content that comes out. Who knows? All I will say is, and you know, you're welcome for the free advertising, Marvel Unlimited, but like services like these, we're so blessed to live in an era where we have access to them because yeah, make your own long box, make your own set of books that are important to you for life. You know, the ones that are iconic to you. Nico mentioned the uh, Jean Grey comforting Jubilee issue of Uncanny X-Men, which is one of the formative issues of comic books for me. But then also come up with some weird idea like you're curious about what makes a Wolverine and then get on the complete Marvel reading order. Fantastic website. Everybody please check it out and support the Patreon and find all the appearances of some random character that you feel is really important to understanding what makes a certain character for you. Read everything that you can. We're so lucky to be able to do it. And, you know, as you can hear us ranting for more than an hour about, you find these interesting connections. And when you get to participate in fandom and just throw out these stupid ideas and spin them into something, you're no more or less right or wrong than anybody else when you find this stuff. And if the personal canon that it creates for you helps you better understand books, makes you a more creative person, helps you engage more, helps you connect with other people, this is all that it's there for. And there are billions of these types of connections to be had. There are billions of configuration of your personal long box that you can create through whatever read order you want to do. And it is valid and it's going to be really interesting. It's going to be interesting to you because it's your thing, but there's going to be somebody else out there who goes, damn, I never knew that there was some random Wolverine parody that looks increasingly like the daughter of Wolverine from an alternate universe that looks increasingly like the clone daughter of Wolverine that we see today. There are people that aren't going to know about this stuff that want to hear what you have discovered and they're going to tell you all the weird things that they've discovered and that is the joy of being a fan of a medium with so much content and creative input that's been given to it over the years. Because to take it a step further because you brought up Laura I can't help but then jump back to my perspective that Rena is very much of the same sorry Wolverina Logana is very much of the same ilk that gave birth to Harley Quinn a character created for Batman the Animated Series who would go on to inspire who may be one of the five most recognizable female comic book characters of all time. I think Harley Quinn is unquestionably Lady Deadpool in stature. I think she's eclipsed any 
other female bat character significantly at this point. And I think, not claiming that Wolverina or Laura has done the same thing, but if Wolverina is very much of that same Harley Quinn pantheon of sort of like 90s girly extreme kind of funny mag versions of male characters that are takes on them not their you know female counterpart uh, directly and then we can see that Laura was born of X-Men Evolution an animated series where she was so popular she got brought over into the comics there really is a transformational thread because we also saw the same thing happen in the pages of Spider-Verse and I think Spider-Verse the event which you know gave us the movie which I think we have to openly acknowledge the success of Spider-Verse is probably one of the things that you know made Disney's dick so fucking hard to get three Spidey dudes in a single film not just to play out the meme these connections are everywhere and they're fascinating and you know you can dig through a lot of old stuff to find what we're talking about but like right now there are trends that are happening in current comics just in in that way that you know what Nico is talking about with like in the early 90s you were seeing a lot more of these like babe alternate versions of characters that you know when done best were not offensively sexualized but were still women that were trying to be women and, and inhabiting female forms in a way that they were perfectly happy with we're you're there are trends that are happening now that are the 2020s version of that and if you are reading current books and really paying attention to everything you will start to pick out that stuff and obviously none of us can predict the future but you'll start to notice the things the motifs that are being repeated over and over again and even if it's not how the creatives that come in a year use these trends think about how you would use them what would you do with what you're seeing happen repeatedly in books all the time right now I'm seeing such an interesting resurgence of horror in comics and the use of dark fantasy and the ways that that is kind of becoming a meditation on the human condition and there are some great writers writing that stuff and I would love to see what they're going to do with it but it also makes me think like if I got got a hold of a you know Marvel Infinity comic storyline five years down the line what would I write for it what from what I'm seeing right now feels like I could plan something for the future that would be interesting what could I plan for my own work that has nothing to do with Marvel all these things are right out there and Read as much as you can and play around with it. You know, Marvel, just on the record, if you are going to give us a Ladies of Wolverine unlimited comic, I would love to have Wolverina just fall out of her what the and bump into Lady Wolverines on her way through Marvel Unlimited and just gather them all up for a Secret Wars style big hair fight. You know what I mean? Couldn't agree I think, more. Yeah. And I would need a whole bunch of Lady Sabretooths as well. Each one more ferociously her suit than the last. And it's a really kind of sad satisfying thing to realize that Spider-Girl is inheritor of so much potentiality that, you know, we said was kind of sidelined for Miles. But I think the difference is Spider-Girl is a form of Spider-Man and as such fulfills the obligation of being an iteration of Spider-Man better than Miles. That is not to say that Miles is not literally the best Spider-Man. But to kind of draw back to the point that we were making earlier, 
earlier, there's sort of two disciplines of spider character. There's kind of like the iteration of Peter Parker that upholds kind of like that internal thing. And then there's like person that also wears that suit. I do believe that Miles has that sense of great responsibility calling, but I believe by virtue of the way the character was created and the fact that he is meant to service a unfortunately still yet unserviced group of fans who are, you know, ethnic minority in any way. You know, as a Latino, I am very proud that Miles Morales is, you know, Latino. And, you know, it's such an incredible thing that he also is a Black character and that we have a Black Latino character that is a Spider-Man. But that very thing that makes him a Spider-Man sort of sets him apart from this discussion of iterations of the direct version. And while I do recognize that there is a lot to be said for the female experience is a completely different experience than the male experience, because so many of these characters were still written by men, I think the act of their femaleness being presented is changed such that it's an outsider male take on it anyway, in a way that you cannot do with a character of color. That's what I'm going to have to chew on. I really, that is a fascinating perspective. The only other thing I was thinking of with Miles, especially in terms of like, one of the really important things about Spider-Man is he is the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Spider-Man is the hero that will go get the cat out of the tree and you believe it every time. And one of the things I love about Miles Morales is it's just a different neighborhood for him. It is that he is not the white kid from Queens. And that's, I mean, he's he's obviously so much more than that I don't want to reduce, but like, I love the idea that you can follow the Spider-Man code in a lot of ways, still be really different, but like, if you are the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, other neighborhoods need that too. Spider-Man can't be the only one. And I love that that is something that Miles has really embraced and done probably the best other than Peter Parker of any spider person. For sure. It's, I think just, yeah, for me, it's a testament to Miles is such a bigger character than that. It's not that he isn't Spider-Man caliber. It's sort of like the way I don't count Dick Grayson a Batman. He's a Nightwing. Yeah. That is such a thing. He is his own definitive character in a way that I feel, well, you know, it's a Spider-Girl world and like we talk so much about Mayday. She's still an iteration of like Spider-Man. Yeah. But like Miles is his own fucking thing I in a good way. Yeah, I see exactly what you're saying. That, yeah, that makes a ton of sense and is really true. It has been two fucking weird hours, bro. <laughs> but I really thought we were going to talk about uh, any, any as Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, I think we're just going to start next time with it. We'll just yeah. do like the whole thing straight through and get, get right it through out of it. Away. Because this was a really important look. And like at some point I knew I was like, I don't want to say vamping, but at some point I knew I was like, you know what? No, when are we going to get a chance to talk about this side of things ever again? So, yeah. you know, I'm really glad we leaned into it and had such a good time. And, you know, on the whole, it's really been an experience looking back so far. And I can't wait to look forward after as Guardians of the Galaxy, we're finally going to look at Spider-Geddon and that's some more Mayday. So uh, I'm pretty excited. Yeah, me too. And yeah, I mean, I think we've been talking about a lot of the stuff that we said here in bits and pieces throughout many, many episodes. And I love to have the chance to just sit down and hash all of it out in one place where we can kind of make the type of connections that we're making about making connections. Part therapy session, part lecture, but I really think I'm so excited to not just be going on and have gone on this journey with you, but really to have started to read and experience comics 
comics in a completely different way as a result of this project. Well, until we come back to experience comics a different way one more time, and this time for those goddamn as Guardians of the Galaxy, I swear to God, we're going to get the fuck through it. I swear, I swear, I swear. I don't know how I'm putting it off. I get to bring up Miracle Man because Angela, so I don't know how I'm putting it off. But <laughs> TK, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx, and on Wednesdays and Fridays on this show, talking about all the other comics that are not MC2 that I read. You guys can find me that same place as well as on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Don't forget, you can check out our partner YouTube channel, the Hubs Plus Network at YouTube. That's Hubs Plus Network. You can check out extended versions of episodes from here, our interviews. You can check out the Billy Club, the aforementioned Daredevil podcast with my amazing partner, Tori Sheehan, and our editor-producer, Kevo, my incredible husband. Don't forget, you can check out my original work over at KidRiotComics.com and in the recently released Young Men in Love anthology. I love being a part of that book. It's such an incredible thing. People still tweeting at me about it. It's awesome. It's a good feeling. And you can check out this show at XsForPodcast.com and at XsForPodcast on Twitter. And until we return for more regular books, a little bit more regular styles than MC2 styles. Assuming we don't discover some other treasure trove of important back issues we need to discuss together and with you. Oh my God. And they're going to be in some humor mag. It's going to be a letters <laughs> page that was one time put in a magazine somewhere. It's going to be a random issue of Conan. Can't do this anymore. All right. No, just run away. It's an MC2 world. And if you don't run away, it's going to eat you. Just go. We'll see ya. <laughs>